Good morning. Hey, good to see everybody here today. We are wrapping up this series that we've had in uh, the fall called Harvest. Look at the different uh, stories and analogies that Jesus used to teach us things. Uh, and, of course, this is a very agrarian society, to use a big word. Not many of us are farmers today, so we got to do a little uh, context building here to really grasp the really really big things that Jesus is teaching us. Uh, today, we're talking about guests, uh, harvest guests. I don't know if you've ever had any family or friends stay with you, stay in your home for a while, and you started to think, well, I've probably got family and friends watching online, so I'm not going to say the actual, what's on my mind, but... I will quote, I think Winston Churchill said it was uh, uh, house guests and fish, what they have in common is uh, they both stink after three days. So, but uh, yeah, so we're going to invite guests. So the parable that Ed just read for us, that Jesus told, um, you see this, the, the perspective of the people at the time was that Jesus was coming as their guest, kind of into their world, into their culture, and their rules. But the reality, of course, is that it was Jesus' world and Jesus' rules, and they were the guests. And he had the power to evict them, even, uh, but instead chooses to stay and, and to suffer in our place for us. So the, the parable, if you've heard it before, it's often called the parable of the wicked tenants. I prefer to rather call it uh, the parable of the renters from hell. <laughs> this is every landlord's worst nightmare here. These renters, these tenants, these farmers are uh, uh, horrible, horrible, horrible guests. Now, to understand, again, the context of what he, when he tells this parable, uh, it, it is Holy Week, right? In a, a week and less, and in days, he's going to be crucified. Jesus is going to be crucified. And he's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple, and he's having this long, drawn-out argument, public argument in front of everybody with the Pharisees about authority. That's what it's all about. I'm going to tell a story I've told before. I think even Pastor Jeremy may have told it, but I like it, so I'm going to use it again. And maybe you've heard the story. It was a, a ship's captain sailing late at night out on the ocean, and on the watch he noticed there was a, a light coming right at him on collision course. So he sends his signaler out to the light, you know. What is that called in the Navy? I don't know. Signal light. And he says, signal Alter your course 10 degrees north. And the message comes back from the light. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Well, that kind of ruffled the feathers of this Navy captain. And he said, okay, you signal, you signal this. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a commander. The message came back. Alter your course I am a seaman, third class. Oh, now he's just, 
he's livid. Right? So he goes, you send this message. You alter your course right now. This is a United States, Virginia-class battleship. The message came back. You alter your course right now. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> Authority. You may be the captain of your ship. Or to mix metaphors, maybe you think yourself as the king of your castle. We all have an ultimate authority. Who or what is the ultimate authority in your life? Who directs your course? Day to day, the decisions you make, how you treat people, conversations you have, the prayers that you pray. What leads and guides all of those things? See, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is having this debate on the temple courts, the steps of the courts with religious leaders because this is right on the heels of what Jesus was probably the most radical thing he ever did on the earth is when he stormed into the temple, flipped over the tables of the money changers, made a whip, drove the money changers out of the temple, which essentially it brought all temple sacrifices for the day to a screeching halt. Now this red flag Jesus to the authorities as, as a troublemaker, somebody who could be dangerous. And so they get together an official delegation to go out and confront Jesus, say, who do you think you are? So right there in front of, again, on the steps, in front of everybody, the big crowd, these religious leaders come out and they ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? I see these religious leaders were in charge of the temple. They controlled everything about the temple. When it was open, when it was closed. What sacrifice you make, what money you change to buy the sacrifice. They made all the rules. They ran it all. And they wanted, first of all, they wanted everybody else to know that that wasn't their doing. They weren't, they, Jesus didn't just act on their authority because you've got some money changers that are kind of mad. You've got some people that travel a long way or they're confused what's going on. Why the long line? Can I get in, get my sacrifice, and get home? And they're saying, it's not us, right? It was this guy. And by asking what authority do you do this, they're really setting a trap for him. Because you see the only person who could have kind of ultimate authority over these religious leaders that ran the temple would be Israel's true king from the line of David, king they've been waiting for. And so now he could be in trouble. That's big trouble, right, if Jesus was claiming that. He could be uh, blasphemy with the Jewish people. He'd obviously be in trouble with the Romans if he said he was the king of everything and taking charge of the temple and all this. So it's a big, big trap. Big trap. It was clever, but just not clever enough. So Jesus answers their question with a question. I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now he, he flips the tables on them, first of all. Just by him asking them a question, He's implicitly telling everybody he is the one with the true authority here. He has flipped the tables from, from uh, being the accused on the defensive 
Now, he's the interrogator on the offensive. And the question, John's baptism. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was popular. Everybody, the whole crowds, they loved John the Baptist. He was awesome. We went out into the wilderness by the droves to listen to him preach. Ooh, he could preach like Pastor Jeremy. People just followed him everywhere. This baptism, was it from heaven or was it from human origin? And you know that they were stumped. You know it was silent for a while. And Jesus said, tell me. Put them on the spot. Now, if they said it was from heaven's origin, then Jesus would say, well, why don't you do what he says? Why don't you actually change your life and repent? If they say it's from human origin, well, now the crowd's going to get mad at them. So he's got them in a pickle now. And like every good politician who's really shifty in what they say they believe in, uh, more concerned about the poll numbers and people's opinion than the actual truth, they just feign ignorance. Oh, sorry, before we get to that. <laughs> the reason that John was so important in this conversation was because of the prophecy in Malachi 3 that everybody knew. Uh, this Old Testament scripture, this prophecy hundreds of years before that said, God said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. You see, if they accepted John's ministry as the forerunner to the Messiah, then Jesus was the one who follows and came to his temple. He's God himself. The Lord you are seeking, coming to his temple. Whose temple? His temple. Your temple? His temple. So that's where the, that's where the setup happened. And then they say, of course, oh, we don't know. Was John for real? Was he a faker? We're just not going to say. We're not going to take a stand on that. And, of course, Jesus says, okay. I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. I'm not going to fall for your trap. So it's in the midst of this argument, in front of all the crowds of people around the temple, that Jesus tells this parable immediately following this conversation. And the, the parable of the wicked tenants. We just heard it. The recap, of course, is this man that owned this vineyard, and he actually put a lot of care into preparing this vineyard uh, to produce a wonderful harvest of grapes and wine, uh, built a wall around it, keep the critters out, put a watchtower over it to keep uh, thieves or the enemy from coming in and sowing seeds and of weeds or whatever. A lot of care. And then he, he leased it out to farmers. It's a very common practice in Palestine in this day, very common. Uh, the owner and the farmers would uh, agree beforehand on a kind of a percentage of the, of the harvest. And when it was harvest time, uh, the owner would come and collect his, his cut. It's that simple. Of course, in this story, uh, the owner sends the son, I'm sorry, first sends the servants to, to, the, uh, to the vineyard to collect the harvest, and they, they beat him up and throw him out. And this is just the escalation of violence until finally they kill one of the owner's servants. 
And then the owner says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll respect him. To which, if you're like me, you're thinking, I would never send my kid there. But this is why it happened. This is a really important detail. You see, the servants of the owner of the land, they had no authority. They, they couldn't evict the tenants. But the son could. They will respect my son because he's coming with my authority. And if they don't cough up my share, when he shows up, he can throw their butts out. Of course, they don't. They, they kill the son. And by this time, all the listeners of this parable are like, this is outrageous. And so Jesus asks, what, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And then uh, Matthew actually records somebody in the crowd so riled up by this story. They just blurt it out. Those wretches are going to come to a wretched end. And Jesus knows, Right? He's got them. This is, this is the judgment, the just judgment for rejecting the authority of, of the owner. And by this point, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they know. They know who they are in this parable. They're the renters. They're the farmers. And we know the, the servants, the servants that the owner sends are the prophets, for hundreds of years, God sent prophets to Israel, telling them what to do, telling them what not to do, warning them, calling them to repent and come back to the Lord. They ignored them. Some of them they beat up. Some they killed. And so Jesus sends his, uh, God sends his one and only son. The beloved son of the owner in this parable is Jesus Christ himself. Now, it is astonishing to me, uh, an average learned man, that there are modern scholars today who question who Jesus was, or even who did Jesus think he was? And they'll say things. Uh, well, Jesus was a, a social justice warrior trying to equal the playing field. Some say Jesus was a revolutionary up to overthrow the establishment, the overlord, you know, Roman overlords. Some people say he was a prophet. He was a prophet from God. He spoke God's word. He told us so many wonderful things. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. So many wise, wonderful words from God. Wonderful prophet. When you listen to Jesus tell this parable, you can tell. He knows he is someone completely unique from all of those people. He is more than a social justice warrior. He is way more than a revolutionary. And he's even more than a prophet. He is the very son of God the Father come to earth with all the authority of the heavenly Father. Completely unique. And how did we receive him? And he took it. Just as in the parable, the, the landowner's son is, is beaten and killed and cast out of the vineyard. Foreshadowing, just days later, Jesus' own arrest, beating, 
and execution. It's, it's amazing. Jesus prophesied right in front of the very people who were about to do it days later. And it just, it all came to pass. Just as he warned, actually. So, this is God's world. We're just living in it. So, what is the proper etiquette for guests in his world? Number one, we want to remember that we are stewards, not owners. A steward is someone entrusted with uh, someone else's property. It could be intellectual property. It could be a field, whatever. Uh, when we're talking about God, uh, it's even our bodies, our minds, our soul, our breath, our words, our thoughts. It all belongs to God, and we are caretakers of it. Now, stewards are held accountable for the discharge of their trust. We are uh, not the owners. Uh, that was the mistake that the uh, tenants in the parable made. They thought that, hey, this is my vineyard. This is my harvest. It's the mistake that the religious leaders made. This is my temple. These are my rules. And it's very easily a mistake that we can make still today when we use phrases like, this is my church. This is my building. These are our facilities. As if these things exist for our purposes and pleasure instead of existing to serve God in his harvest field to bring in more people to faith in Jesus Christ. Say, this is my praise band. This is our praise band. Aren't they great? I love them. They sound so good. It makes me feel so happy during worship. But their ultimate purpose is to share the gospel with people beyond our walls. Our kids program, our youth program, as if it exists for our children. Instead of existing for sharing the love of Jesus Christ with students all over our community. It's really easy for us to fall into that trap thinking that this is mine, this is ours, it's for us. And really, it's God's. And yeah, some of it's for us. We get a share. But we also owe the owner a share too. And he uses it to, to bless our community and especially to share the gospel. Proper guest etiquette, uh, number two for me, I would say, or just remember that our authority is always under God's authority. The religious leaders did have authority over the temple. They were very important people. They just forgot that there is an ultimate authority. God's authority is that lighthouse. It does not move. And we either align our lives with God's authority and his will, or we crash into the rocks. So all of our authority. So I think of myself as, let's say, a parent. All the authority I've been given uh, comes from God. His authority is superior. So if I were to ever to tell my kids to do something that is contrary to God's will, they are perfectly justified in disobeying me. There's no court. There is no church. 
denomination. There's no family member. There's no government that can supersede the authority of our Heavenly Father. And we always have to stand up against those who would uh, push us, coerce us, order us uh, to do otherwise, regardless, regardless of the consequences on earth. Also, sometimes people in authority try to tell us to do things, uh, to not do things that God would have us do. I think of so many Christians who are persecuted around the world, who are ordered not to gather and worship, not to come to church, not to baptize their babies. And that's contrary to God's will. They must disobey in those circumstances. So the harvest. The harvest is rich. The laborers are few. There's uh, weeds that pop up that we have to deal with. There's recapping all of this. And then uh, today, I hope that probably Thursday, but whenever you gather around your table this week uh, to give thanks for all the blessings you have in your life, add to that a prayer. Add that a prayer that you will be a good steward of those blessings that are from God and will return to God, always belong to Him. And we will use those to of course, enrich and nourish our family and their walk with Jesus, and also our friends, our church community, our neighbors, our community at large, that we use everything to give God glory and to share the good news of Jesus, the true Son of the Father, died for our sins, risen for our eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you created everything, so Lord, it just makes sense that you own it all, and uh, we just pray that uh, we would always have a good perspective on that in every aspect of our, of our lives, but even as a church family, Lord, uh, that we do see your blessings here as gifts from you, as stewards of those things that, uh, that we use, of course, to enrich our worship, of course, to teach our own children uh, your truth. Uh, but also uh, to reach out and share your love, your mercy, and, of course, the good news with our neighbors. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen.